Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I've got two wonderful guests today, and I guess before I introduce them, I'm going to quote one of them. Maybe y'all can guess which one of you I'm quoting, okay? More than 50% of cancer survivors report problems paying medical bills, financial distress, or delaying in or foregoing medical care in the past year. So we're talking about financial toxicity today, the, the, the financial burden of cancer care. I thought that was a really great quote to start with. Do you, do you know who said that in one of their publications? I think that's Robin. Robin said that. It was my colleague Robin. Um, uh, one of one of the three hundred publications between the two of you in the last year or two. It seems like you're always coming out with something. So let's get to intros real quick. I've got Dr. Robin Yabroff and Dr. Stacy Dusetsina with me. Uh, Dr. Dusetsina, you are a former ACS grantee. That's right. Uh, Dr. Dusetsina is an associate professor in the Department of Health Policy and an Ingram Associate Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt. Thank you for joining. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, and, and I've got another expert to talk with you today, my colleague, Dr. Robin Yabroff. She's a scientific vice president of health services research here at ACS in the uh, Surveillance and Health Equity Science Group. I couldn't think of two better people to speak with about the financial burden of cancer. I mean, half of cancer survivors report problem. I mean, when you get diagnosed with cancer, you think, I've got cancer, I've got to deal with this. What you may not think about is, I may go bankrupt. I may lose my home. And I think there are a lot of different ways we could go with this conversation because there's a lot of things that need fixing, prescription drug coverage, insurance coverage, provider factors, patient factors, on and on and on. So as a starting point, uh, Dr. Dusetsina, do you want to maybe start with prescription drug coverage and give us the uh, kind of a 101 or maybe a 911 on, on the state of things in America right now? Yeah, 911 is definitely the state of things in America right now, and for people with cancer in particular. Um, so just to give a, a little bit of a lay of the land, um, when we talk about prescription drugs, we're talking about many different types of products and policies. So in general, the way that the drugs are covered differ depending on whether it's a drug you would fill in the pharmacy, like a pill, versus if it's an infused drug that you get in an infusion clinic or in the doctor's office. So um, I'll split those up real quick. So in general, if you get an infusion, it's being offered through your medical benefit of your health plan. So for people with private health coverage, um, medical benefits pretty straightforward. For people on Medicare, that's covered under Medicare Part B as in boy. Um, those tend to be fairly well covered by most health insurance plans. And for people with commercial insurance, they, they typically will have to pay something for those drugs or for the visit where they're getting the drugs. But often there's an out-of-pocket maximum that includes all of your medical spending. For Medicare beneficiaries, it's a little bit more complicated. It depends a lot on whether you're in a Medicare Advantage plan, a private plan that is being offered. About 40% of Medicare beneficiaries are in Medicare Advantage, and that's growing. Um, for those beneficiaries, they often have an out-of-pocket limit on drugs that you get in the doctor's office, these infused drugs. 
for a traditional Medicare beneficiary, it's a little bit more complicated. A lot of people have what we call Medigap, a supplement to help cover their out-of-pocket costs. So infused drugs can be low cost for them. But about 10% of Medicare beneficiaries don't have any of that. So when they go in to get an infusion, they have to pay 20% of the drug's price, and there's no limit on that. Now, shifting over to drugs you fill in the pharmacy. Um, so those, so, so yeah. real quick, so you, you the first thing you just talked about was in, infusion drugs, right? Yeah. And it sounds like for that, complicated picture, of course. We're talking about American healthcare. Of course, it's a complicated picture. But not... It didn't sound like it was just um, a desolate landscape. Like it was complicated. Robin, you look like you. Yeah, so. it's a little desolate. <laughs> it's desolate, exactly. I think you know, uh, for the the this relatively small percentage, but a large number of Medicare beneficiaries who do not have any private or public supplemental coverage, they're responsible for twenty percent. Of the of the price of the cancer drug without any cap, and so without you know, any cap, without yeah. any cap on out of pocket spending, and so if you think of a drug that's a hundred thousand dollars a year, and twenty percent of that would be a twenty thousand dollar out of pocket payment each year that the patient takes that drug. And I, you know, so I will add there's there's been some research showing that most Americans say they can't afford an unexpected expense of $400. Mm. Yeah, so it, I, it's a financial catastrophe yeah. if you're in that 10% who doesn't have out-of-pocket coverage because as Robin just mentioned, you know, it's not just that one drug, it's everything else that you're also, every doctor's visit, every mm. radiation treatment, every surgery, like everything, 20%. Yeah and no limits. So it is a absolute catastrophe for people in that situation. Mm-hmm. For, for people on the private health insurance side, it can also feel like a catastrophe. So mm-hmm. there are out-of-pocket limits for everyone on the private side, private insurance side, but those limits are very high in some cases. So you could be talking about tens of thousands of dollars potentially on a family plan. And if you have a condition that needs kind of this ongoing chronic type of treatment, that's every single year, which can be an enormous financial burden. Um, And also we know that trends in general have been higher deductibles for people. So most people um, are paying at least some form of deductible where you pay 100% until you reach this certain level of spending, could be $1,000 or $2,000 or $5,000. Mm-hmm. And so, again, uh, Robin mentioned that, you know, $400, most people don't even have that. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about many multiples of that being what you have to pay to even start get to, to get care. I interrupted you before. You 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 covered the infusion therapies and you were about to move on. Yeah. So yeah, I guess I was going to then give you the bad news. Uh but yeah. So <laughs> So well, obviously there's no good news. Again, call 911. Um the bad news, the orally administered therapies have 
kind of worse coverage in some ways. For people with commercial insurance, similar rules. So you may be having to pay deductibles, but you have an out-of-pocket maximum. So same sorts of issues with the infused and the oral drugs for commercially insured people. For Medicare beneficiaries, the situation is much worse. So even if you're on Medicare Advantage, even if you have a supplement, you cannot avoid high out-of-pocket costs unless you have Medicaid. So you qualify for low-income subsidies, then you're covered and you have low out-of-pocket costs for those drugs. But otherwise, most Medicare beneficiaries have to pay thousands of dollars to get started on orally administered treatments that are available today. And then they have no out-of-pocket limit on the Medicare Part D benefit. So even if you have an out-of-pocket limit on Medicare Advantage, it doesn't include your outpatient prescription drugs. So if you had a cancer where you had a surgery and radiation therapy all covered under the medical benefit, and you hit your out-of-pocket cap, and then suddenly you need an orally administered drug, you have to pay for that completely separate. So this is a huge financial risk for Medicare beneficiaries, and the prices of the drugs and the number of drugs that are orally administered has just blossomed. So we have maybe 60 or more orally administered cancer drugs covered under Medicare Part D. Their average prices are over $14,000 per month. So then beneficiaries are paying a percentage of that price. And, you know, kind of this can look like $15,000 or more out of pocket for a single drug over the course of a year. So that's that's probably the, the bad news. As if, um, and I'll just add that a lot of the anti-cancer drugs are covered on what's called a specialty tier, which means that the percentage of the price that that patients have to pay is higher. So we're not talking just about 20%. In some cases, we're talking about 30%. So Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, if you look at the way that this functions for Medicare beneficiaries in particular. If you hadn't spent anything else, you go in to fill, you know, your drug to treat your cancer. That price at the pharmacy counter is two or three thousand dollars for that first 30-day supply of pills. That's the average person and no plan. You can't shop your way out of this problem. So it's not like you can find a Medicare Part D plan that offers you a chance to get your drug at a $100 copay or a $50 copay. It's like, this is just what it is. And, you know, we know from the literature that when you get faced with this amount of out-of-pocket spending, that about half of people or more will just abandon their prescriptions at the pharmacy counter. And that makes sense because I don't know about you guys, but if I went to my Walgreens down the street and they said, you know, okay, here's your prescription. It's going to be $2,500. I would have a moment or two or 10 and I'd probably leave and think about like whether or not I could do that. And, you know, I, I think the other thing to really be thinking about is some of these drugs are incredibly effective 
And unfortunately, patients are not taking them because they can't afford them. A lot of patients are finding out mm-hmm. at the pharmacy counter, right? They're not finding out in the doctor's office when they were diagnosed. Um, as if they didn't already have enough stress and anxiety and decision fatigue and fear. Right. Um, this is just the compounder of all compounders. And it really does affect the whole family, right? Yeah. So what I I guess one thing I was thinking about is Robin and I have both been trying to tackle this problem for a while and come up with sort of somewhat divergent views, right? There's the Medicare beneficiaries and like they typically report less financial toxicity than younger aged people. But there are these complicating factors, right? It depends on what type of cancer and what type of treatment and do you have a supplement and did you get infused drugs and do you have retiree benefits and do you have a huge retirement account versus did you have to quit your job because you're a younger person who has cancer and can't work and now you lose your health insurance benefits. And so it's kind of this like weird cascade problem. And even among Medicare beneficiaries, people with low income subsidies, you know, they're not getting hit with a $3,000 bill to fill their drugs. They, they have to pay $9. But. but they can't afford to drive to your building and park and pay the parking fees to go in and get their infused drugs. So it's kind of this complicating, you know, it's hard to tell who's going to have a financial challenge. And I'll just say like, as a, as a caveat, one of my, one of the things I think about a lot uh, hits close to home. My, my mother, when she was diagnosed last year with metastatic breast cancer, there was a moment where we were being told yeah, she would be recommended to take this orally administered cancer drug. She's on Medicare Advantage. And I was looking at this drug thinking it's $15,000 annually. She's retired. She makes about $40,000 in retirement. There's no way to get around this problem. So if she's prescribed this drug, it will be a financial catastrophe for her. You know, we could figure it out as a family. But she ended up in a situation where she needed infused drugs and she had an out-of-pocket limit on her medical benefit because of her Medicare Advantage plan. And so now her treatment is very affordable relative to the expense of the drugs. And this is just the arbitrary nature of what type of cancer, what subtype of cancer within that cancer type, and what the best treatments were for her, and that she just was fortunate in a bad situation to have drugs that were really well covered. But it could have very easily gone the other direction where now year after year, it would be this tremendous additional out-of-pocket burden. So when I think about like how complicated it is, it's like because of all of that, right? That there's so many moving parts. Right, right. And I think probably the only, I'm not sure, Stacey, that we have diverging views. I think, you know, we, it's it's almost like we appreciate different parts of the problem in different ways. Yeah, and I I think we are always on the same page. It's just, it's this interesting like, 
where what we focus. groups we're studying and yes. where you're seeing these effects and why. And I think that that's been so fascinating to look at, you know, when you're looking at a population and, a, you know, population-based survey and you're getting this information about kind of on average what's happening in these different age groups, it's like versus some of the work that I do that's um, looking more from the benefit design, like what happens when you apply this benefit design to the problem? Um, but, you know, when you ask people about, like, what's the financial burden? Well, it might be low, but it might be low because the patient has opted out of the treatment that was too expensive for them. Exactly, exactly. I think, you know, some people tend to measure financial toxicity or financial burden as a percentage of spend out-of-pocket spending on healthcare in relation to their income. And, and that's a fine way of doing it. But the big challenge is people who choose not to get healthcare because they can't afford it may show up looking like they don't have a lot of burden when in fact they have enormous burden because they've made these horrible decisions that they can't afford their cancer treatment. Um, and, and, you know, I will also say, like, when you think about different populations, it's, you know, definitely the importance of what cancer, what subtype, what stage, what treatments available, um, are there clinical trials available, you know, there's a lot of different factors related to that, but also when we think about where people are in their lives when they get that cancer diagnosis, and so when you think of someone who may be completing their education or beginning a career, family building, you know, all of these factors, a diagnosis of cancer as a young adult can be especially devastating and that can last for years and years and years, you know, affecting employment and, you know, employment of course in this country affects the quality of the health insurance coverage if, if your employer decides to offer it for you mm -hmm. and also the sick leave if your employer decides to offer you sick leave and so all of those things are also related to financial hardship and then on the other side most medicare beneficiaries um many are retired and living on fixed income so yes. despite yep. having some of the protection of the medicare program they they also face you know potential you know, horrific financial consequences, but for different reasons. Yeah, I that's I could not have said it better. Hmm. <laughs> and can I just add one more thing? Let's not forget about people who don't have health insurance coverage. Yeah, I mean that I often think about that group and any access to medications is so difficult because even if you're not using a cancer drug, let's say you need an inhaler for asthma, it's so expensive. Like drugs are very, very expensive for the average person. And if you don't have health insurance, it's like I, there doesn't seem like a path forward. And particularly for these chronic illness situations where you need ongoing care. Um, and definitely there are you know, 
groups that have basically been put in this position. You know, I live in a state that did not expand Medicaid. So you end up in a situation where you have people who can't afford to be in a private plan on the exchange. They don't receive any subsidies to help lower their costs. They don't qualify for Medicaid because they're they are low income, but not low enough income in some states. And that is a group that is so vulnerable because the reality of trying to pay for any cancer care just seems like it would be completely out of reach. You're at the mercy of trying to find a group that maybe provides charitable services, foundations, other organizations, fundraisers, your church, GoFundMe, you know, like there's all this patchwork, but it's not a long-term solution for someone who needs ongoing care. It's just, it's not at all possible, I think, to pay for that. Even if you were very wealthy, it would be hard to pay for today's cancer treatments. The bills would add up so quickly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think frequently when people talk about charity care and go fund me, that is not health insurance coverage. Nope. That is, you know, that is a one-time potentially way of addressing financial catastrophe or, or maybe stay staying it off a little bit or, mm -hmm. you know, slowing it down, but it is not health insurance coverage. And it also has huge implications for the rest of the family. Yep. GoFundMe is not a solution. It's not coverage. Is not it's not fixing health. But but we should talk about solutions. You've you've talked about. I mean, it's a pretty gloomy picture you've described, and it's affecting. Nobody's unaffected. You've talked about how ca catastrophic it is for young adults, mm -hmm. and ACS has documented the rise in cancer diagnoses among young adults. It's numbers climbing, and and Stacy. So first of all, big hugs to you and your family and your mom. Um, mm -hmm. That's a very personal story. But, sh you know, I always thought of, of retired people with Medicare as enjoying the best uh, insurance coverage we have to offer. And so truly nobody's unaffected by the financial consequences of cancer. But we've got two pretty smart people here who've, who've uh, devoted their careers to not just identifying the problems with the healthcare system and uh, examples of financial toxicity, but proposing some pretty good solutions. So I wonder if we could kind of zoom in on some of those. Yeah, I, I will start with a policy gap. So there are some things that I think we don't want to patchwork together that we have to fix through fixing the policy. So the most obvious one to me is fixing the Medicare Part D policy to limit total out-of-pocket spending. So capping that at a certain level for everybody, because whether you have cancer or whether you have some other condition or you just have a lot of medical needs, you shouldn't have to spend an infinite amount of money. And it's really unfair when we think about everyone else with insurance coverage has an out-of-pocket limit that includes prescription drugs. So this is a gap that needs to be filled. And it's one that policymakers are looking into and thinking about and have proposed legislation on this topic. 
and I'm very hopeful that it changes in the near future. So, so, so I should interrupt you to yeah. say that part of the reason policymakers are looking at this is be because of you. Uh, you had a <laughs> publication last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, Broken Promises, How Medicare Part D Has Failed to Deliver Savings to Older Adults. You might want to punch up the title a little more on your next <laughs> publication. <laughs> Jeez, I Stacey, that's make it real subtle. subtle. You know, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to blast any programs, but <laughs> it's beyond time. It's very clear that Medicare Part D was an excellent option for, for people when it first came around. We didn't previously have prescription drug coverage for many people, so this was a huge advance. But over the years, we've seen the price of drugs increase, the complexity of the drugs offered on the benefit increase, so more cancer treatments on that benefit. And the benefit wasn't designed in a way of thinking about people needing really expensive drugs. And so now you look at it today and it doesn't make any sense. And so the policy proposals fix many, many problems with the Medicare Part D program. And I think that it absolutely is necessary and would help so that, you know, when you're in a situation where you have cancer or other complex illnesses, that whether or not you are looking at financial catastrophe is not dictated by whether your drugs are infused or orally administered. That's ridiculous. So that should be fixed. And fingers crossed, policymakers will get those changes pushed through in the near future. I think that's that's one thing. Um, another thing that colleagues and I have been thinking about and writing about in the context of high deductibles or even thinking about an out-of-pocket cap on Medicare Part D is, can you break that up? Like high deductible or having this one-time cost that is so much money it doesn't really make sense for people. So it's like, could you take, if we say you're going to have a $3,000 cap on your out-of-pocket spending, could you just break that up so that it has a monthly cap in addition to an annual cap? So maybe say you don't have to pay more than $250 in any given month and cumulative over the year, you don't have to pay more than $3,000, something like that. You figure it out, the math would work, you break it up over months. Um, that could be applied to the commercial plans as well. So um, we've actually seen an example of this. We have some recent work looking at cancer parity laws that include an out-of-pocket cap for people who have deductibles. And it appears to be very effective if you said you don't have to pay more than, you know, $100 or $200 and that applies whether or not you have a deductible, it seems like it really improves affordability for patients. And that just seems like smart policy. So make it easier for people while still, you know, having some sort of ability to uh, design the benefits in a way that's affordable for employers and people overall. So all that sounds good. But I mean, I'm thinking back to something, Robin, that you said earlier, like a lot of people can't afford a $400 expense one time. So breaking up a giant expense into a $400 expense each month, like there is a there is a poverty problem in America and a disparities problem in America that that is looming over all of this. And I guess as we talk about potential solutions here, I guess the 
the question I posed to you, Robin, is what what can we do to alleviate some of the financial burden that's just uh, really related to the the larger disparities issues that we have? Is that a dumb question? No, no, it's a really, really good question. It's a really good question, and it's really hard to answer. Um, but I, I will actually say that despite how dire the situation you described, it's actually worse, which is that it's, it is it is worse because as our as our um, the therapies or you know treatment is becoming more intense and lasting longer, and including more combinations of drugs and treatments, it means that any disparities that we have currently are will widen in the future. So that's I think that's the really important thing is what we're seeing now is not where we're headed. Where we're headed is someplace much worse. Well, where, it sounds like what you're saying is like, as cancer treatments improve, disparities widen because the the if, if most effective treatments are really expensive. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly what I'm saying. Unfortunately, as as you know, we have many of these new advances in treatment because they're expensive. Any disparity that we observe now will only widen in the future in terms of um, whether or not people can access the treatment. But also, it's I my my sense is that it will lack likely affect disparities in survival following a cancer diagnosis as well. Yeah. So, I mean, having said that, you know, we have seen research, and this is something that we tend to work a lot on, of evaluating the effects of Medicaid expansion. And, you know, so we do see that in um, for people with cancer living in states that expand Medicaid, they're more likely to be insured after expansion. They're more likely to have access to some treatment. And there's some early evidence that um, they also have better survival than their counterparts living in non-expansion states. Having said that though, eligibility for Medicaid is 138% of the federal poverty line. And so even, even in states that have expanded Medicaid, there are many low-income people who work and they work for employers who do not offer health insurance coverage and they're not eligible for Medicaid. And, you know, some some of these people also face challenges with affording marketplace plans. And so Medicaid expansions help and certainly in states that have not yet expanded Medicaid eligibility, expanded that threshold. You know, I mean, that's certainly one important option, but making care affordable is going to take a lot more than just than Medicaid expansion. Yeah, this, I know we're going into a dark place. <laughs> I, I think, I guess one, one question to get at your comment about like paying monthly $250 or $400 a month or whatever, like that's still going to be too much for many people. You know, one of the tensions that we're always dealing with is like, how much do people want to pay for the privilege of having health insurance? So like your premiums, the affordability of your premiums for having some sort of coverage. And 
how much do we want to pay when we need to use services? And that's a kind of a balance that it, you're always trying to strike. One of the things that I always find to be really interesting is every year Kaiser Family Foundation puts out a, an employer health benefit survey. So how much does it cost to have health insurance? And the family premium for health insurance last year was $21,000 a year on average for a person who's privately insured and working. And your employer is picking up a big part of that tab, but $21,000, and this is for you to have a $2,000 deductible and have to pay 15 or 20% whenever you receive services. It's not to have like a luxury plan where you don't have to pay when you get care. It's kind of your basic plan. So there is this kind of how do we make this work so that if you did need cancer treatment, that it's reasonably priced, but that we don't want to price people out of paying for health insurance in general, because then you then it just kind of spirals. So then your pre premiums keep going up and everybody keeps dropping out. One of the ways we have to think about this in the long run is like thinking about what we should pay for and how much we should pay for things. So uh, Robin and I have been talking about, you know, wanting these generous policies and this generous coverage. And we come at this from the assumption that people should use these medicines. But there are a lot of medicines that maybe we shouldn't. And we certainly shouldn't pay 15 or $20,000 a month for something that doesn't really help people. And unfortunately, we don't differentiate right now. You could take an orally administered drug or an infused drug that really extends your life and gives you good quality of life, or you could take a drug that doesn't do either of those things and they cost the same amount. And so like there is this kind of tension of like, we gotta stop paying for the stuff that doesn't work if we want to have better coverage for the stuff that does work. And that's a hard conversation because, mm. you know, this is then there may you be get some special and, interests that, it, yeah, that kind of don't yeah, want to get rid of those costs, right? There are some groups with opinions about yeah. that. Um, really? <laughs> people have opinions about that? Some no. opinions. Yeah. yeah. But I think that that gets to the root of this issue of, you know, can we really create generous benefits? I often joke that I would never be good at running a health plan because I'd want everything to be really inexpensive for people. Like I'd want to give everyone who needs um, imatinib free imatinib because why in the world would you charge someone for something that is so transformative for their lives? But I think there is that reality that that is not most cancer drugs. And if we can't do a better job of distinguishing that, like then we can't make the really great drugs in, inexpensive for patients. That's where we would like to go. Um, but that that's going to take some time. Yeah. I, I think we can get there. But I'm an optimist. Yes, I was just going to say, I, I, I tend to be an optimist as well. But I, I think it's going to be, you know, rough sees maybe for a while. Um, yeah. But I, I also want to add that, I mean, that, so that's in drugs, but we have, we have similar, we have similar issues in other types of healthcare where 
we don't necessarily distinguish between what works really well and things where there's just not quite as much evidence. And we, we just don't distinguish between those and they can both be expensive. Yeah. And I think even worse, right? We, we have newer technologies that are more expensive and not really better. And in our fee for service model, like most of the time you're incentivized to use a more expensive technology as long as you can get paid for it. And so we've created a system that gives us exactly what we're getting, right? Like that too much spending, not efficient use of services, like, and and I'm so unpopular in uh, meetings of people who have actually more money than me, where I'm like, everybody just has to take less money. And, you know, then you're really not super popular. <laughs> but I think that's the, that's going to be the trick is like, it's, you know, it's the entire system is like everybody is profiting over these prices. It's hospitals. It's every single entity in the supply chain for prescription drugs. It's everybody who gets paid based on a percentage of the drug's price yeah. or the service. It's like all of it. It has to get pulled back if we're going to have affordable care. Right, right. And it's, it's also a good opportunity to talk about prevention, too. Like, yeah. there are a lot of really effective prevention strategies that we know work and don't just reduce the risk of cancer. They reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. You know, it, they're, they're, you know, like yeah. smoke cessation is great. And preventing people from stopping smoking, another great you know, another really great way to reduce problems with health and also reduce healthcare spending. But and a th third of Americans are obese and on and on and on. Yeah. But yes, yes. You know, I mean, but but I do think it's important to, to sort of think back to what else can we do if we're facing these really high treatment costs, then suddenly our prevention strategies and our early detection strategies where they exist become much more cost effective. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to close with a, a question that's kind of difficult to frame because you've talked about how complicated the picture is and how there's all these different insurance plans and prescription drug plans, et cetera. But if you imagine somebody who's driving home, they just got diagnosed with cancer, or their spouse, their loved one, their mom just got diagnosed with cancer. And of course, on the one hand, you're thinking about treatment and how to, how to get through it and how to keep your energy up and spirits up. But then if you wanted to give them some words of advice about the financial aspect of this, with the understanding, of course, it's a complicated, nuanced picture and everybody's situation is different. If somebody was listening to this, maybe they just got diagnosed and they want, you know, where to start? Where do you start? Joe, that's a really good question. And it, it's a hard one because I don't think there's any one thing. I think there's a number of different things I would, you know, I would think about. And one of the first ones is having very frank conversations with all of, all of the treating providers about you know what the expected what the expected benefits in terms of survival and quality of life um, hopefully minimal side effects and also the financial side effects 
what would be expected out-of-pocket expenses for for treatment, and how did how does that vary depending on the type of treatment? Um, and then the other piece of information I would say is depending on the time of year, I would be I would be very, very thoughtful about choosing an insurance plan for the next year to make sure, you know, maximal coverage of out-of-pocket expenses. Yeah, I absolutely agree. First thing is to open the conversation with your healthcare provider, your, your physician, your oncologist, about cost being something that you're concerned about. Like everyone's going to understand why it's, it can be very costly. And for them to know that this is something that is weighing on you, it's important to you, then they can be thinking about when there are options, they can pick a less expensive option and really keep an eye out for that. You know, I'd say that maybe two other things. One is um, that palliative and supportive care services are available in some places and it's not end of life care. It's about having to make sure that your priorities are being met, helping you think through the quality of your care, what questions to be asking and how to really support you through this journey. So if those services are available, take advantage of those. It doesn't mean you're choosing not to pursue treatment. It just means that you want to have a conversation with people to help you look at the big picture and think about like, what's the best strategy for you and are all of your goals being met? That's a great point. I mean, palliative care, sometimes people associate it wrongly with end of life and it's it extends your life, it enhances your life. The evidence shows that it's just win, win, win all the way down the line. Absolutely. Completely. I am was, not vigorous. I am nodding vigorously here. That is such a good idea, Stacy. Um, the one last thing, and I w- just want to give a plug for this because I think uh, it's a line of research that I have found so fascinating. Um, it's work from Victoria Blender and her colleagues that are looking at supporting people with having conversations with their employers um, around work accommodations. So if you're a younger person, if you're still in the workforce and you get diagnosed with cancer, having some conversations with people about both with your, your oncologist, but also with your employer about what's going on and the potential need for some scheduling accommodations This seems to be a very helpful way for thinking about being able to maintain your employment and your health insurance while you're undergoing cancer care. And the work that they're doing is just like really outstanding for helping to think through that piece of the puzzle because it it does mean a lot to be able to maintain your employment as much as you can. And if you're going to be undergoing cancer treatment, you know, that's the last thing you want to have to worry about. But having those conversations early can be really helpful. And you may find more support than you'd expect from those places. Another great suggestion. And I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, I think it's an important thing to be talking with all providers about. Again, not only, not only so it can go into that calculation about different treatment options if that's something that's important to you to be able to maintain employment. 
Um, but I, I think it also helps increase awareness. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, this is something more recent that I am seeing more providers with interest in helping patients talk about employment and talk about how treatment affects them beyond just the single measure of improving survival. Because I mean, yeah. we all want, for anyone with a cancer diagnosis, we all want them to have a long survival, but we also want it to be a good one. We want to make sure that they have a high quality of life and that they can maintain all of their usual activities. So I think these conversations are really critical. Me too. Uh, I got to say, it's been really lovely speaking with both of you. I, I got to thank you for, for everything you're doing to push the field forward and, and help patients and give policymakers the evidence they need to, to, to make some good changes. Have a great weekend and let's do it again, for real. Let's do it let's again. Do it. Yeah.